welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, you should be hearing this on, uh, on Boxing Day on December 26th. And if you listen to the last podcast, I said we'd talk about something, maybe a new approved drug because the FDA seems to do that, and they did. So today we're going to talk about Infortumab Vidotin, or maybe it's Infortumab Vidotin, uh, if you like the, the Fortu. So uh, I'm going to say Infortumab Vidotin, and this was FDA approved on December 18th for urothelial, we think of this commonly as bladder, so urothelial cancer, basically in the third line setting. So the approval is for adult patients with urothelial cancer, either locally advanced or metastatic, who have received prior treatment in the neoadjuvant adjuvant or in the metastatic setting, and they had to have received at least one line of treatment with a platinum-containing regimen, and then also a PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor. So you can think of this as a third-line treatment. And now this is an accelerated approval, and if I had to ask you uh, to predict, what was the pivotal study? And when we use the word pivotal, we mean the study that got the drug approved or got the drug established in this line of therapy. What are the characteristics of the pivotal study that got this drug approved in the Accelerate Approval Program? And if you've listened to the podcast or followed drug approvals uh, in recent years, you would probably guess this is a single center, single arm study. So only patients got infortumab vidotin, uh, probably about 100 patients, and the primary endpoint was overall response rate. And you'd be right if you guessed that. So we'll talk about that the, the pivotal study in a little bit, but mechanism of action, this is a unique drug. It's not unique in that it's an antibody drug conjugate. So you have the uh, infortumab, that's a monoclonal antibody, and the vidotin is uh, monomethyl R-statin E, uh, and that's a microtubule inhibitor. So it's, there's a link, there's a linker. So the, uh, the monoclonal antibody, infortumab, is a nectin-4 inhibitor. This is the first nectin-4 inhibitor that's approved. Now, nectin-4 is a transmembrane protein. Uh, that serves as uh, a cell adhesion molecule uh, and is involved in cancer growth and progression. Now, its real role seems to be a little bit undefined um, as of now, um, but its um, association, so the more nectin-4 expression that is found, seems to correlate with a poor prognosis in pancreatic cancer, uh, and it looks like expression of nectin-4 may be a good prognostic factor in triple negative breast cancer, uh, and it's highly expressed in urothelial, breast, gastric, lung cancer. There's also some expression of pancreatic cancer. Uh, so what exactly its role is, we don't really know, but it does serve, apparently, as a target for at least urothelial cancer. So now let's look at the dosing and how this drug is given. It's The dose is 1.25 milligrams per kilogram, there is a max dose of 125 milligrams if somebody is above or at 100, kilo, 100 kilos. So there's a max dose of 125. This is not something that we generally do is cap our dosing based on weight or BSA, but it is done for a couple monoclonal antibodies, as is the case based on the label for, uh, for infortumab vidotin. Uh, it's given IV, 30-minute infusion, days 1, 8, 15 of a 28-day cycle, so weeks 1, 2, 3, week 4 off. Um, so the dose, you know, the average American is going to be like 80, you know, 80 kilograms. So you're going to get a dose that's, that's close to 100 milligrams probably for a lot of these folks. Uh, and the drug, at least now, is going to come in 20 milligram and 30 milligram vials. There are no pre-medications required for this. So it will be a fairly... Um, 
easy drug to infuse, uh, to administer. It looks like the administration um, with uh, process is not going to be as straightforward because you have to use a couple vials to make this drug, it looks like, uh, at least in, in the average American adult. Let's talk about the efficacy. Quotes, air quotes around efficacy. So the pivotal study, and I, what I do uh, think is nice, is this pivotal study is fully published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, earlier this year. It's published online in May of 2019 by Rosenberg's colleagues in JCO. It's like a 20-page publication. It's got all the supplementary appendices in there, so it's nice to have that for a drug that's approved. 125 patients, all with metastatic urothelial cancer. The median number of prior treatments was three, uh, and uh, half of them had three or more prior treatments. Um, so it looks to be that these patients are a little heavier pre-treated than maybe the approval. Now, it's possible that some of these patients had platinum therapy in the, in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting, and they had disease recurrence years later and were treated again as platinum-sensitive disease with another platinum regimen. That could have been counted as two regimens. Um, but the approval, as I said earlier, is for you, you've had to have treatment with one platinum line of therapy and one immunotherapy. The overall response rate, which was the primary endpoint, was 44%, so 55 out of 125 patients. Not too bad. They compared that to a historical control of 10%, um, which, you know, it's, it's hard to make those comparisons, especially in the immunotherapy era, knowing that sometimes, uh, you know, responses can be later with immunotherapy, or you can even have benefit from immunotherapy without having an actual response. But still, there's, there's definite signs of disease um, activity here. Of course, we don't know if that correlates to uh, survival benefit with uh, overall response endpoint. The complete response is only 12%, so 15 of those 125 patients had a complete response, which, you know, 12% is nothing to sneeze at to have complete disappearance of disease. Um, now, moving into, uh, so that's the good, I, su I should say. Uh, let's move into the bad. So hyperglycemia is the first warning we see in the API. Now, it's not that prevalent. Only 11% of patients had hyperglycemia but it was a grade three or four hyperglycemia uh, occurred in 8%. So if you had hyperglycemia, it tended to be a severe uh, reaction, including at least one case of death and DKA. And this seems to occur regardless of whether or not the patient had diabetes at baseline or not. The package insert does state that the risk of hyperglycemia increased with body mass index or weight, as well as with baseline AUC. And it's important to note that patients with an A1C of eight were excluded from clinical trials. So the rate of hyperglycemia in patients with diabetes or severe diabetes is probably unknown because those patients would have had an A1C of 8 and would not have been able to get uh, infortimabvidotin. Uh, and then there are hold criteria uh, for blood glucose above 250. So this is a drug that patients are probably going to have to get a finger stick uh, glucose um, if they're not getting labs that day in clinic to make sure their glucose is not above 250. Um, so why does this drug cause uh, hyperglycemia? For example, with alpelosib, because of the way uh, the isoform of PI3 kinase inhibits makes sense that drug would cause hyperglycemia. We saw that with other types of PI3 kinase inhibitors. Uh, but Nectin-4, we're not really sure. As I mentioned before, Nectin-4 expression in pancreatic cancer cells uh, seems to correlate with a poor prognosis with pancreatic cancer. So is it, I suppose it's possible Nectin-4 is expressed in normal pancreatic cells, maybe beta islet cells, and it somehow maybe that leads to a decreased insulin when Nectin-4 uh, is blocked. Uh, we don't know, or when those cells are killed. Again, uh, we don't know. Um, now, the, the one patient that's described in the JCO publication that had grade 4, so, so DKA, um, you know, was treated with, apparently with insulin and oral agents, 
and then the drug was stopped based on the protocol. So any grade four, you know, probably a, at least grade four non-hematologic toxicity would have been stopped the drug permanently. Uh, so after stopping the drug, uh, the patient was able to have a, a recovery of a normal blood glucose and able to stop insulin and oral hypoglycemics. So something that we would have to monitor in these patients. The second warning is peripheral neuropathy. Of course, with an MMAE, with a microtubule inhibitor, microtubule poison, the drug's going to cause um, peripheral neuropathy. So half these patients, 49% had neuropathy, but only 2% of those events were grade 3. So it was generally mild. 9% uh, of patients had to have a dose reduction due to peripheral neuropathy. 6% had to stop treatment due to peripheral neuropathy. Uh, there were ocular toxicities in 46% of patients. Um, that includes keratitis, blurred vision, increased uh, tearing. Uh, blurred vision happened in 14%, dry eyes in 36%. Median time to onset uh, was about two months. And the PI says to consider artificial tears prophylaxis. If they have issues, they go see an ophthalmologist and then to consider optical uh, ophthalmic corticosteroids. Uh, rash or skin reactions happen in 54% and 26% of those is a maculopapular rash. In 30% it was pruritus. This happens after the first cycle. Most patients it goes away. Uh, there were 10% of patients had a grade three or four rash and there was one case of Steven Johnson syndrome. Not reported in the PI, but is in the JCO publication. And then infusion site reactions happened uh, fairly frequently, um, but this appeared to, maybe not fairly frequently, but more common than I would expect, uh, this appears to be due to extravasation. So I'm not, I didn't look into where these studies were done, and was this an administration issue where this happened, but there was pain at the administration site if there was extravasation that could last for, for a while. And then of course, uh, with an MMAE or microtubule inhibitor, there are concerns for embryo-fetal toxicity, and given this patient to women with child or of childbearing potential. Other notable side effects or toxicities that occurred, fatigue, 56%, uh, dysquasia or a change in taste and how food tastes, 42%, alopecia, 50%. We don't think of monoclonal antibodies as causing the hallmark toxicities like alopecia and cytopenias, but because it is a microtubule poison, not all of it gets inside the, the cancer cells expressing nectin-4, some of it breaks off, either before it gets in the cell or comes back out after it enters the cell when the cell undergoes apoptosis. So half the patients had some degree of alopecia. Vomiting occurred in 18%. Could be the drug, could be the disease state, hard to tell uh, with a single arm study, but this would qualify in the lowly metagenic category since it's less than 30%. Um, anemia in 34%, 10% of those was grade three or four, but again, metastatic cancer. Uh, there was no reporting that I could find in the PI or in the paper about thrombocytopenia. Um, but we did see some neutropenia uh, in 8% of patients, a serious neutropenia. 4% um, of patients had febrile neutropenia, which was the most common severe toxicity. And so overall, not a surprising toxicity profile outside of the hyperglycemia, which is something that uh, we're becoming used to with mTOR inhibitors and PI3 kinase inhibitors and now uh, infortimab vedotin. A uh, couple uh, things that we should be aware of in the Oncofarm community with regards to uh, you know drug elimination and drug interaction. So uh, the MMAE is a 3-4 substrate. We know from other uh, antibody drug conjugants like say brintuximab vedotin. Now there are no formal drug-drug interaction studies with infortimab vedotin, but quote, another antibody, this is, and when I say quotes, this is from the package insert. This is what they put. They're able to put this. Another antibody drug conjugate with MMAE when given with cutaconazole had an increased MMAE exposure of 34%. The PI says we should closely monitor for toxicity in those patients. 
And there would be this, apparently the same concern, of course, with three or four inducers. Uh, there's no dose adjustment for severe renal impairment. That's good because these patients sometimes could have disease that's, that's blocking uh, urinary output uh, because of their bladder cancer. But in patients with hepatic dysfunction with other antibody drug conjugants with MMAE, we do see more toxicity even with child pub. So it's not recommended to give this drug with child pub or C, so mild or moderate or severe impairment. It's not recommended not um, not recommended and we should avoid use in these patients. So that's uh, infortumab vidotin. You know, bladder cancer is pretty darn common, um, but again, this is an accelerated approval. Whether or not it has any improvement in overall survival quality of life, those studies should be forthcoming um, to keep the drug on the market based on the accelerated approval program. Now, before we call it a year, you might be asking yourself, what is a phase one study of a tyrosine kinase inhibitor in CML in the New England Journal of Medicine. Don't we have like five of those? Uh, what could this possibly be? Well, on December 12th of 2019, uh, Asiminib, A-S-C-I-M-I-N-I-B. Now, the C followed by the letter S, I don't know if this is Asiminib or Askiminib, but I think Asiminib uh, sounds a little bit like cinnamon. I think it sounds better. So why did this make it in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine? First of all, phase one studies you can have a positive phase one study and it's spurious and it flames out in phase two or phase three. We see that. Why is this in the New England Journal of Medicine? Well, it's a not the same TKI binding site that we see with imatinib, uh, uh, dasatinib, nilotinib, bosutinib, and panatinib. It binds to a totally different binding site, whereas these other CML TKIs binding to the ATP binding site of the BCR able uh, protein. This is an able one inhibitor. Um, so it binds to this totally different site, um, and it's, it's a little different, difficult for me to describe this in an audio format, uh, but if you go to that New England Journal publication, there's a nice figure of what this looks like, but by binding to this totally another site, it via allosteric inhibition, it causes a conformational change that basically renders the kinase inactive. Um, so it's a, it's a unique drug. And because it doesn't bind in the same way of these other drugs, it has activity against CML TKI resistance mutations in the ATP binding pocket, including the T315I mutation, uh, for which previously we only had panatinib that would target. And panatinib is a dangerous drug. Whenever you have a drug that can cause strokes and heart attacks, uh, you know it's concerning. Uh, so uh, asiminib. Um, not, not ready for prime time, of course, not FDA approved, but I do think it's worth noting in case you encounter a CML patient um, who is not tolerating uh, TKI, can't tolerate panatinib, or now had, say, a ser serious toxicity and should not take panatinib. Um, you can't just put them on this drug, but what you can do is go into clinicaltrials.gov and search uh, Asiminib and find a study um, somewhere in the country where this patient could be referred possibly to be enrolled in a clinical trial uh, and do that more for patients. We need more patients on clinical trials, um, uh, personally, uh, more so on uh, cooperative group studies uh, that seem to ask better questions that we would like answered for our patients. Well, that puts a bow, a ribbon, on 2019. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, that's two plus full years of Oncopharm in the books. Uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you all. 
Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeaton and follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod, both on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to reach out, uh, slide in my DMs, let me know what you want to hear more of on the podcast. If you have ideas for episodes, um, give us a nice five-star uh, rating, give us a review, tell us what you like, what you'd like to hear more of uh, in the iTunes store, the Apple store. You can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud and Spotify and, you know, all those places. Uh, and until I talk to you again, remember... Matter. Thank you.